0: My name is Carla, and this is the podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast we'll be taking a journey through some of Victoria's greatest war stories from the police veterans who live them and those who support them. Today I'll be joined by Ken Ashworth, a Victoria Police veteran and recipient of the Australian Police Medal with 39 years' experience in the job. Having joined the force at 18, Ken was quickly thrust into Melbourne's wild west scenes of the 1980s and would make a name for himself for arresting and successfully prosecuting some of Australia's most notorious criminals.
1: Division 4. A Crawford production.
0: Morning, Ken. Welcome.
1: Morning, Carla. Thank you. How are you going? Good. Yourself?
0: Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Good. So I want to start this off by talking about Division 4. For anyone that doesn't know, Division 4 is actually the theme music to this podcast. I didn't know what it was until Dave McGowan actually told me what Division 4 was as a show, same as Matlock and Homicide. Yep. But yeah.
1: That's what uh, I grew up on in the early 70s. And yeah,
0: yeah, well, common common theme here. Every veteran that I talk to... It seems, when I ask them, why do you want to get into the force, they say, oh, because I watched Division 4 and Matlock and Homicide. <laughs>
1: exactly. And I wasn't smart enough to fly uh, fighter jets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. So kind of, it'd be good if you ran me through what it, kind of the transition story from dreaming about being in the force to actually joining the force.
1: Sure. Sure. It was my last year at uh, school. I went to Chetston High School and um, I came across a fellow who was in police cadets uh, playing football. And um, I looked into that, I thought, oh, that'd be interesting. And as I said, growing up in the early 70s, watching all those police shows and that, I had the interest in it, Um, looked interesting. You could still do education and vocational things and you were getting paid for it. And I thought, hmm, that's all right, I might have a crack at that. So I uh, finished up at school, did some interviews, I was accepted. Had that summer period off and started in the Cadet Academy on the 1st of February, 1977.
0: I love the memory recall that veterans have. It's (laughs) insane.
1: (laughs) I can barely remember what I did last week. But that's um, what I mean. Like,
0: I don't remember what I did this morning.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I I went there and um, I did six months at Cadets that was here at Spencer Street. Mm. And then I turned 18 in three months, I think, or 18 in six months. And then went out to the police academy. Uh, 18 squad of 77. Finished my recruit training and went to Collingwood Police Station as a trainee.
0: Mm. Okay, cool. So, when you when you joined the force, you're eighteen. I'm fresh out of school. Yes. Tell me, what was the transition like? Kind of going, taking a school uniform and then putting on a police one.
1: Yeah, uh, actually, it was, on reflection, it was quite good for me because uh, a little bit wayward as most young people are, and I think the discipline of cadets stood me in good stead for basically the rest of my life. Mm. Um, yeah, the discipline, self-discipline and, and just discipline in life.
0: Yeah, but I mean, because that transition was so quick, like you were so fresh out of school, was that, I wouldn't call it a culture shock, but was that quite a shock to the system going from just being a school kid to suddenly having all this kind of authority?
1: Yeah, and responsibility. Responsibility to yourself and to your colleagues and um, mm. being prepared for things.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. managing
1: your life. Um, mm. Instead of you know, just a, a kid roaming the streets and playing pinball and doing whatever you wanted <laughs> to all of a sudden you're in a regimented, um, disciplined well, organisation.
0: Yeah, and especially as well because, because once we kind of hit 18, at least in Australia, you're kind of expected to just start your adult life. But when I think back to when I was 18, um, there's no way I could have been making massive decisions like that. Um, mm. I don't think we're mentally as prepared as we think we are at
1: 18. Yeah, I, I tend to uh, tend to agree. I don't know how I did a, a lot of it back then.
0: I don't know but how a lot of veterans did it. A lot of, the common story I seem to hear is, yeah, I started at 17 or I started at 18. Like, that's very young.
1: Mm, mm. On, on reflection, I had very good sergeants. Yeah. When I first graduated, um, they were very good, and they probably shaped the rest of my career because, uh, which, as you know, was most of it, mm. as a fair percentage as a detective. and. The sergeants that I had at Collingwood at that time—they were all ex-CIB—and they they taught and trained me very well, and mm. put me in good stead. And once I left that Collingwood as a training station, that was it. I always wanted to be a detective.
0: Mm. Okay. So when you first started out at Collingwood, I've I've heard that in finding the quote good cops, um, you also found good crooks. Um, mm. What what is a good crook?
1: <laughs> uh, well, I suppose you could have two definitions. A good crook's one that never gets caught. <laughs> and another <laughs> definition is one that's always getting caught, you know. and Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, the classic case was we always came across the Pierce's, the Pettinggills and the Allens around Collingwood those mm. days. Um, another old-time crook, Keith Calvert, I don't know if he's still alive, he was always around there. Um, gee, you're going to test my memory now. Yeah. <laughs> but some good old names, old docket heads, old painters and dockers were all... Um, mm around that area at the time. Mm. So no, they knew nothing but crime.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, I, I noticed you mentioned the, the Pettingill family. Mm. Um, just being in the force at a time like that where you know the Pettingill family has um, inspired however many true crime documentaries mm. now, mm. it's like law to people that live in Melbourne. It's kind of bizarre to be talking to someone that was in the thick of it, Mm. Um, well, they
1: lived in Richmond. They were in Stevenson Street, Richmond, mm. and Chestnut Street uh, as well. They owned a number of houses. An old uh, Kath, she ran mm. a brothel in Stevenson Street. The name escapes me at the moment. I think mm. it was 108 and 1110. Mm. Uh, Dennis lived next door.
0: Yeah, I remember that.
1: And um, what's the father? Um. The bloke from... Oh, he's dead, yeah. dead now. No, yeah. one escapes me. Mm. Shot in Bay Street, Port Melbourne. Mm. One of the Wall Street killers. Yeah. Lex, Lex. Pierce. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah. Well, I um I was going to ask Not you Lex about. Pierce. Well, I was going to ask you about Lex Pierce anyway. Yeah. 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 Um. So you you caught him at the Grace Darling Hotel. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Night shift doing a bird. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Was that one of your first
1: big arrests or? Um, uh, an active crook it was. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, had another. I remember. Drug pinch, which was a good one because we got a fair amount of heroin. A bloke called uh, Naomi Azoglu, right? And um, we found some heroin in his car, and he was a, an importer of heroin. And he was involved with another fella who had shotgunned and killed another bloke over a drug deal. So that was a pretty good pinch as a as a connie. Mm. Um, and grabbing one of the pierces or petting girls as a connie was was mm. good. Yeah. Yeah. Caught him in the act. We had a bit of a toe to toe, and took him back to the police station his co-offender who i can't think of who that was now and um next thing the whole family descends on the collingwood police station at <laughs> eddie court we had to lock the front door and uh <laughs> call for backup and other units came from around but uh, yeah they besieged the police station release him release him and it was yeah
0: and how did you what did you even do in that situation Did you wait it out
1: yeah yeah, yeah. until the resources came and <laughs> got rid of the rest of the family from out the front and processed Lex and uh, yeah he came to court and pleaded guilty in the end
0: yeah. yeah so are you one of those people who found that scary or really exhilarating exhilarating yeah oh yeah. I don't even know why I asked that question because most veterans do yeah like things that seem really frightening to me are like oh that was the best day ever yeah That's absolutely. so exciting absolutely. Yeah. yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah look right through my whole career of 44 years you know I had some Fantastic days, mm. you know, um, as, as I say, I, I was involved in seven police shootings, mm. you know, four were fatalities and I'd pulled the trigger twice myself. And it's very exhilarating, mm. but then you, that's when the issues start, years later and at the time you start thinking about other things, well, what if this had happened and what if that had happened? You know, mm. and I had a young family at the, at the time.
0: Yeah, which makes it so much more high risk. It's not just you anymore.
1: Mm. So you start thinking about that. Yeah, but um, you just get sort of wedded to the job, and mm. it's it's all consuming.
0: I've never heard someone describe it as wedded before. Like, oh, just went yeah. to the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It is part of your life. That's.
0: I think it's really apt. It's mm. the most apt description I've I've heard so far. That yeah, you just give up everything
1: mm. to this. Well, I oh, like many people in the younger days and even in the latter days, you would give up rest days <laughs> just to go in and do the paperwork. Mm. So when you're next rostered on, mm. you could go out the van and catch more crooks. Yeah. You know, um, so you come in early, you do your paperwork, The sergeant go, who's got paperwork? No, mine's done. Okay, mm. you're on the van or you're on the car. Great. And out mm. you go.
0: Well, it, it must be a good sign that, you know, you love your work.
1: Oh, yeah. You yeah. Didn't, No one ever went sick and you didn't want to miss anything.
0: Yeah. No, no. Well, because imagine missing out on... Oh, you know, anything in in that period of time.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And you had the esprit de corps, you formed some great uh, relationships. Yeah. You know. I'm still great friends with people from cadets. Mm. You know. Yeah. We don't see each other as often, but we keep in contact on social media and things like that.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a big thing as well. I hear from people about the camaraderie. And that's the thing that you lose. It's the feel it's the biggest loss when you're out of the job is the family that you had is is gone. Yeah, that
1: it doesn't have to be. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. have to be, you know, there's plenty of lunch groups.
0: Yeah, and, and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um and that's Police Veterans Victoria, I think it's fantastic for that, for keeping yeah. people in, in contact. Yeah. Um you can always pick up a phone and ring a mate and Yeah. Mm. yeah.
0: So um the robbers, um I've heard yep. before they often use palom- uh, paramilitary military tactics, um and very very sophisticated surveillance. Um so Tell me about kind of attempting to take down a gang as sophisticated as as them.
1: Oh, we got a lot better when I was there as a sergeant. Um, Things had progressed technically as well. So you would use surveillance, both electronic and physical. Mm -hmm. Um, Use of listening devices, telephone intercepts. You know, everybody knows about them. Mm -hmm. Um, Long distance surveillance. Um, You can use aircraft, things of that nature. Uh, Yeah, so you can embed yourself into their world and know what they're thinking and planning.
0: Mm. But you'd have to be one step ahead constantly. Absolutely. Mm. How do you stay a step ahead?
1: Try and be as good as you can with your gathering of your intelligence.
0: Yeah, mm. okay. Um, so I know as well, um, when we're kind of talking about that period of time, um, 1988 was an especially big year for you. Um, that was Ray Denning and Russell Cox. So mm. for those kind of unfamiliar with, that whole scene at the time can you can you take me through just that moment in time
1: sure i was a detective at the um, robbery squad at the time and we were doing a surveillance operation on another um, uh, crooks that was operation no name that was called anyway about a week before this day we arrested these guys at doncaster uh, ray denning escaped from custody in New South Wales. Now, Ray Denning it was an active crook all over Australia, but particularly in New South Wales. And um, I got a phone call, I was in the office, and the Sydney hold-up squad rang, and I just picked up the phone, and they said, oh, I kept a out for these two blokes, Ray Curry and, and Ray Denning, they might be heading your way. They're escapees from up here. Okay. So, I put it in the message book and bits and pieces. Well, lo and behold, uh, a week later, we're out on this surveillance operation. We get a message from the office. Can you head to Doncaster? There's... Um, a suspect car, New South Wales registered, followed in a Bramble's truck. Okay, so um, we head out there, other guys from the office come out as well as um, uh, the local CI there at Doncaster. Cut a long story short, uh, one of the guys from the office, Dave Brody, gets into uh, the suspect vehicle because the occupants had gone into the shopping centre and finds items belonging to Ray Denning. And carry on. So we knew that that, that belonged to the escapees. Mm. So we set up a perimeter around it, and we were going to take them out when they came back to the to the car. Anyway, they go back to the car, and at the same time, this other car comes in, which was a Ford sedan, and pulls up right next to them. And there's a conversation going on. We had no idea who this fellow was. Mm. Anyway, the plan is: we'll we'll intercept the certainly the escapees and we'll grab the other car at the same time if if need be. So, anyway, the car moves off, we run parallel, and as it turned right, we turned left. We do, this is no great speed or anything, so we go nose to nose. I get out and cover them with the shotgun as two other detectives coming up from the other side. Mm. They basically give up, that's Denning and on. and they get taken out of the car, but at the same time, this car, this Ford that had followed up behind, squeals off down the, uh, to get away, and uh, then I hear all this crackling down the bottom of the, <laughs> the uh, car park and I am standing on the bottom of the car and I could see the roof of that car going down the back and then ran, got off the car and ran across with another detective and we watched come back up towards us um, we could see a glint and knew he was armed so a number of shots went off we fired a number of shots there number of shots came up from behind as well and he clipped the car and then ran into the wall. Anyway, he gets dragged out of the car and he's got um, identification by the, in the name of Rossiter on him,
0: mm. which
1: was a bogus thing. And that's a long story, how we later tracked that down through a whole lot of uh, other avenues of inquiry and linked that to other people, and subsequently a homicide. But anyway, he's taken away to the office and he says to him, you'll be surprised to the guys that took him back to the office uh, you'll be surprised who you've got and Mm. the fingerprinting back at the office and bingo he comes up as Russell Cox now Russell Cox had been on the run for 10 or 11 years he escaped from Katingal which was the maximum security in um, New South Wales he cut his way out through a bar in in the exercise yard and uh and escaped that way. And he was wanted all up and down the eastern seaboard for a series of hold-ups. He was, mm. a, he was a very good hold-up man.
0: Mm. I remember Dave talking about that. He yeah, well, Dave slippery- was there on the day. Yeah, 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 he was a slippery guy. Yep,
1: yep. <laughs> um, Coppers had got him before, but he dropped got the drop on him and got away. Um, he was very, very cagey, very good at what he, what he did. Mm. Um, and he was also wanted for the murder of Ian Revel Carroll, who was a painter and docker, And that was down at Mount Martha in 1983. And that was all over the the dispute over the proceeds of the Great Boogie Robbery. Mm. Although Cox wasn't there on the day, he was instrumental in the planning of Mm -hmm. the the Great Boogie Robbery. Anyway, they missed. uh, There were barrels underneath a chook shed in the back of the house at Mount Martha, which had allegedly over a million dollars in it. From the great bookie robbery. Anyway, they found shed. Yeah, (laughs) they found. That's that's what the fight was all over. um, Was this money? And Cox shot shot Carroll. They found also in the roof of the house a a huge cache of weapons, automatic firearms, Mm -hmm. uh, handguns, and bits and pieces. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. Kind of leads me into. So this is something that I haven't tried before on this podcast. I've got a bit of a like an explain that photo segment where Mm -hmm. I'm going to show you an old photo a photo that needs a little bit more context. And for the people that are listening, I'll put the the link to this particular photo in the show notes so you can have a look at what we're talking about. But this photo, yep.
1: please explain. <laughs> that's taken by the media who, I don't know how they got out there so quickly. But I think it was
0: 9 News.
1: Might be. I've got the yeah. tapes at home. Yeah. Because I, I reinvestigated a whole lot of these matters mm. um, in regards to a, a previous murder, which I've touched on before. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Russell Cox being led away in the front. Is Dave Brody, who I was talking to on the phone only yesterday. Mm. In the background is Steve Brown, uh, and of course Russell Cox in the t-shirt, and Barry Harnell at the back there. Mm. They're all members of the armed robbery squad and out there on the day.
0: He looks so happy. <laughs>
1: uh, Cox? No, not so happy. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's a it's a very similar photo to something Dave McGowan uh, showed me. Mm. It was uh, I think it was a screenshot of. The video where um, I think it was Dave and Cox in the back of the the back yep. of the van, um, yeah, being driven away, yeah, yes. And yes. Dave's <laughs> he's got such a grin. He's like, "Yes, yes, yeah. we got him." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It was just one of many big days that I've had.
0: Yeah, yeah. okay, cool. Yeah, um, good team effort. Mm, so, um, your work with the the Trident Task Force,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you were kind of apprehending some syndicates from the inside. Um, when I was kind of looking into this, like. Thought they were kind of like sea bandits because um, mm. this was all happening. Um, this was all happening on the waterfront. Yep. Um, and there was a, a Chevrolet Impala with apparently twenty million dollars worth of substances inside it.
1: Yeah, it, um, t- it was imported from uh, America. It was it was the third of vehicle that had come through and was of, of interest. And it went through what we call the Seth Container Examination Facility, and they x-rayed it and found in the back panels um, neatly packaged. Mm. bags and it put a drill into it and it came up positive as uh, methamphetamine mm. and that put the customs drug dogs through it and yeah, they went crazy as well so mm. um we took that out to forensic science and they got into it they mm. took the wheels off and went in underneath so you couldn't wouldn't be disturbed
0: mm-hmm.
1: pulled out all the things and we did a substitute and put in devices in there as well sealed mm. it all up again and then um, eventually got collected and it was put in storage for a little while, then it got serviced. And we had telephone intercepts happening and listening devices all over the place. Mm. Plus doing our background investigation. And um, one night uh, the, where the car was garaged, he made some phone calls to a fellow who had come out here, who we referred to as the Spaniard. And he was the bloke that had packed the car. He had some debt owing over in the US. And he was the bloke that packed the car and he came out to unpack the car. Because mm. he could tell if it had been uh, tampered with, so we watched him go out to where the car was out in the uh, western suburbs, and we could listen because we had the devices in the car, listen to him get into the car and start dismantling it, and he put all the uh, the substitute in a backpack, and we arrested him at the front when he left the left the address there.
0: Mm. But supposedly there were two more cars. Um, yep. Do you know what happened to them? Nope. And one of them was just never found again, Correct. right?
1: Yeah. 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 So. Do you ever think about it? Oh, every now and again. Because it was supposed to have gone to a, uh, an address in Port Melbourne that doesn't exist. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so every time I go through Port Melbourne, I think, hmm, I wonder where that car is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh,
0: that would keep me up at night. Yeah. I'd be so curious. Yeah. If just, yeah, they were never to be seen again. Yeah. I would well, need to know.
1: That we came from the... East Coast? Uh, East Coast or West Coast? Oh, I get, can't remember now, I get confused. Mm. But we backtracked that car and with the assistance of the DEA and uh, NYPD, we got onto a syndicate over there that they were working on as well. And uh, the lead investigators for that job, uh, Bangala was, was the name of the operation, Operation Bangala, went over to the United States and worked with them and got the big head honcho of that syndicate. Mm. and convicted him over there. So it was, it was really good, good mm. operation that one, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Um, and then I know we were talking about it a bit before but um, Operation Afloat.
1: Mm-hmm. That was um, the last big job I did. Yeah. Um, that went for uh, almost two years. It was, um, uh, it's been finalized to court now and everybody's convicted, but it was an undercover operation. Um, we ran with the AFP, uh, Trident Task Force was a joint agency by the way, Uh, We had the AFP, ACIC, Tax uh, Border Force in it. Uh, VicPol with the lead, I was in charge of it. And we got an in from the DEA. There was a syndicate looking to get uh, into the Melbourne docks because our sister task force, Polaris in Sydney, were all over the docks and it was very hard to get stuff in through there. So they were looking to come in to Melbourne. Well, we introduced some UCs at a high level and they took the bait like that. Mm. And, and away it went for 18 months, and um, we arranged, we went all over the place. The UCs, they were in uh, Asia, um, or America, you know. We went, just winding it up, I went over and was in uh, Miami, Panama, Bogota, and Catahana, whilst the UCs were operating, and we met the, the main targets and bits and pieces. We got a shipment in of 100 kilos of cocaine, we substituted that. We managed to lure these people out. They involve links to the Kali cartel, but also uh, Vietnamese Canadians. And they came out and we got them here. We rented all these rooms and hotels and we supplied them cars, which are all uh, tricked up with devices in them, and things hmm. like that. <laughs> and then we did a series of arrests. It was straight across one morning. We grabbed them all and um, locked them all up anyway. They were all convicted and uh, the main bloke fought the controlled operation that we ran, went to the high court, came back and in our favour and they were all convicted and total of about 100 years imprisonment. And we smashed, wow. smashed that syndicate, yeah. Mm. So that was really good. Some mm. excellent work by the investigators at Trident. Mm. Yeah. And great assistance from uh, the DEA and agencies mm-hmm. overseas and on, in Bogota, the surveillance... Uh, they were very good.
0: Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's cool to see that crossover happening between mm. Mm. Um, Australian Police and International. Yeah. Yep. Um, that must have been so exciting.
1: Yeah, it was good. We had some great relationships with uh, particularly the DEA. Mm-hmm. Um, they were good uh, and they still last. Uh, I worked well with the AFP as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because when you work in that joint agency, everything's should be shared. Yep. Uh, and and that's how it works if people keep secrets it doesn't work mm-hmm. and opportunities are lost and i've seen more opportunities lost through um you know secrecy than the sharing of information which is oh well, that matches this that match it and we can work together mm-hmm. yeah
0: so going on a bit of a time jump here yeah. um so black saturday um yep. i wasn't aware that you actually led the investigation into the, those bushfires yeah, down um, at
1: Gippsland, Operation Winston of Task Force Phoenix. Yes.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, Black Saturday took 11 <laughs> people's lives. Um, That's right. So you actually identified and prosecuted the person responsible for lighting the original fire. That's yes. it, at yeah. Churchill on the day, yeah. kill all those people. Yeah, yeah. Brendan's soccer look. Yeah, and what was that investigation even like? Even just, I mean, because I remember that Black Saturday like it was yesterday, mm-hmm. but was that at all like an emotionally charged investigation?
1: Yeah, it took a toll on me later, yeah, absolutely, yeah, because absolutely. I
0: can imagine it would be, because that day for anyone yeah. living in Australia at the time is yeah. so dark.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I, yeah, I don't remember it well, I remember the day, because I was actually at work, and you could smell the smoke, you know, in the air mm. from here, mm-hmm. uh, in Melbourne, and um, anyway, Um it was such a hot day and it had been a hot week, all the, all the lead up to it, and I thought, like, geez. jeez. I remember on the Sundays talking to my son, I picked him up from his work, and I said gee, think of the unif- poor uniformed blokes down, you know, dealing with all this, and, and up north as well. Mm. You know, we get in Monday morning into the office, and crime department, we get called in that um, we're going to take the lead on the investigations. And I was, as you just mentioned, tasked to go down and lead up the, uh, Gipps, uh, uh, yeah, the Gippsland investigation. So we had 11 people, I think 12 died. Uh, one was natural causes mm. by the, uh, the coroner, the PM. So we got down there on the Monday. I had uh, two good senior sergeants with me as well, Pete Endler and uh, McNolan. And we went down there with a crew, and they the crews yeah. alternated, but generally we had uh, the main people there, and caught up with the uh, fire, arson investigators down there. And they were still tagging and bagging, bodies and the fire was still going and mm. that and we went out to some relatives there that they'd lost their parents and the ground was so hot you could see and, and smoke was still still going everywhere it was uh, really right into it yeah. you know as it was still happening and we were missing people down there as well um, so it was a bit poof hey this is a big job Yeah, know? this is a big job and this whole, the whole community was devastated Mm. So I went back on the Tuesday morning, I think, and briefed everybody, called everybody in and we were setting up an office to to operate out of. And I said to the guys, I said, you know, on the face of it, it's pretty big and daunting, but we're all trained detectives, so let's go back to our training and let's do it by the book, everything Mm. we're taught to. So now we've got the crime scene. We know where the crime scene is, so we went back out there. And it wasn't... It was just basic good plotting police work mm. because we went to the scene and we went and did all the neighbours and if the neighbours weren't there we went back and we found them and we spoke to everybody that was there and we got witnesses to basically who saw him starting that fire and his car was there and his car conked out and he got it extracted out later and he went back to the scene that night because mm. he's next cfa person.
0: I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. Really? Yeah, and he wanted to help and he was told, no, go away.
0: Because
1: oh. he had been a suspect for lighting fires down there before.
0: The irony?
1: Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, we, we had an overwhelming case on him in the end. When we arrested him, which was later that week, um, we grabbed him in the street, took him back, searched his house. His dog, his dog was called Pyro.
0: So, oh, God. Yeah, he was Pyro. What? Pirate, yeah. Pirate.
1: <laughs> and... Um, he uh, wasn't going to say anything and um he he needed an independent third person because he had um, some issues
0: mm.
1: so he said no i didn't do anything and he denied everything and this we've got this all on video and he's no 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 and uh, i said to him um we're not going away
0: mm.
1: we're not going away at all and you are under arrest and you will come back with us so we put him in the cells and he was in there for about an hour and we were talking about strategies and we'd contacted the independent third person and the forensic um, doctor to come and examine him that he was suitable to be interviewed and knew right from wrong, all that sort of stuff. So we're waiting for all that to occur and then we get a message from the watch keeper downstairs, oh, the bloke you've put in the cells for the fire wants to talk to you. Okay, so i say to the two investigators, um, wear some covert microphones oh. and make sure the first thing is that you get him to say. Apparently, you want to speak to us mm-hmm. because it was at his request, mm-hmm. which they did, of course. And uh, bang, he confessed to the to the whole lot. Mm. Yeah, just like that. Yep, and then later on, he interviewed, he was he confessed as well.
0: I wonder. I mean, that's such a short amount of time to change your mind to just suddenly confess.
1: Well, I think he knew that. It wasn't just the case of, uh, I'll just tell the coppers I didn't do it, they can't prove it, and they let me go, which has happened in the past. Yeah. I think he thought, but- hang on, I am in the inside of a cell. <laughs> uh, I don't know all these people, and they seem to know what they're talking about. So, wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I'm i not sure I've heard of, of a situation like that before, It just cave so quickly. <laughs> um, I would love to know what was going through his head at the time, like the panic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so the only thing I put it down to was that uh, he knew that he was in trouble and perhaps he'd uh, mitigate his responsibility, he'll he'll confess to it to to a degree.
0: Yeah, maybe.
1: Yeah, he said he was sorry what happened. Well, yeah. (laughs) But um, yeah, that's what happens when you go lighting fires on days like that.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure he would have understood.
1: Yeah, yeah, some of the people died, he knew. What
0: happened. Oh, God.
1: Yeah, well, I think he, he lit the fire because he likes fires, but what happened that day was the, um, the wind mm. was terrible and the mm. wind changed, turned it into a huge front, which then swept through mm. Churchill and yeah, killed all those people. Yeah. So
0: you, you said something once to John Sylvester. I, th- I thought I'd read it to you because I find it really powerful. You said you walk into a shop and immediately you look for vulnerabilities and exit and entry points. You yep. see a driver... Why is he wearing gloves in the middle of the day? Yep. You're never off duty. So hypervigilance is something that I have talked to a police veterans quite a bit about. Yes. How has that affected you long term?
1: Oh, definitely affected me long term. And it really started to hit me when I was a sergeant, I think. Um, I was always waiting for something bad to happen because I was always in the middle of something. Something always happened. Um and so you just become paranoid about it. You're looking, you're always looking around and I suppose working at the uh, armed robbery for so long are uh, two different ranks and that, you're laying in wait for crooks to arrive and rob places and things like that. So you you just become second nature. You're looking for entry, exit, what's vulnerable. Mm. Um, here I am off duty. What if something happens in front of me? You know. Well,
0: you're by an exit point right now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, but
1: I'm looking at the door over there. Yeah. So you, know, you try to cover it. Um, yeah, and you just become hyper vigilant, and then you think about things, and you you don't sleep. Mm. That, that's when I really first noticed. That it was um, you'd wake up at two or three in the morning. It always seems to be three o'clock in the morning when the demons come, and you start reflecting on things, and mm. you know uh, some of the the critical incidents that you're involved with, particularly the one where we did the raid and the member was shot because the bullet whizzed past my right ear. Right. And you just remember it so clearly, um, you know because then we had to deal with the crook, we had to deal with the, the, the whole whole lot of it, mm. and the injured member who fortunately survived and still alive to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I start thinking about all those sorts of things. Mm. Um, Operation Pig out we my crew started, which was all the holdups out at Endeavour Hills on the pizza places, and uh, which turned into Operation Hamada, which turned into the Mervan Street. Moorabbin police killings mm. you know and I knew both Gary and, and Rod because um, when I was the senior sergeant of Peran and Rod was in the special duties there and I'd sent him to the DSG because he was a good operator
0: mm-hmm.
1: and Silky I'd known from the crime department and uh, he was a sergeant when I was at St Kilda He was a senior sergeant there and, and I sent him there to the DSG as well mm. and I sort of felt you know I always felt and still a bit guilty that I started that job and two people I knew ended up being killed out of it you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's so those sorts of things play in your mind, and absolutely, you know, you you reflect on those critical incidents, and you think, Jesus, how lucky was I? And you know, it yeah. could, have, could have turned to turned to crap, and we, there's
0: all those what if scenarios as well.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. We ran another job where two crooks were shot dead. They were doing a hole up out at Hampton Park, and I was in charge of the armed robbery team out there at the, at the time. So, and that went through the Coronial inquest, and you know, the whole department were all, all on edge, and I felt a bit abandoned on that. But um, anyway, the coroner found, found in our favour there was no problem there. Mm. But mm-hmm. yeah, so all those little things that all build up over the years, mm. and then you got the internal stress of uh, which is created by the police department. You know, everything's urgent, everything's got to be done by close of business, and
0: yeah, you know, yeah. they put
1: you under that sort of pressure, and uh, you know. Yeah, the constant what ifs, yeah, buts, and maybes, and have you considered this? Have you considered that? Well, yeah, I have, and yeah, yeah, mm. yeah.
0: And hypervigilance over time, um, yeah, just being in that like quote unquote, you know, fight or flight,
1: anxiety um, kicks in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you go from so anxious that you're waiting for something bad to happen. Mm. It's past and then you hit the depression.
0: Yeah, well, and I'm sure that comes about as well because you're just exhausted from being yeah. anxious. All you're tired the time. all the time. Yeah. Tired all the time. yeah.
1: Towards the end of my career, there were there were some days I could hardly get out of bed, mm. and there were days I didn't go into the office. And I said, "Look, I'm just going to work from home," um, you know, because when we were doing Operation Afloat, we had UCs overseas, like, and you're working 24 hours, even though you're not sleeping when mm. you're trying to sleep because it's daylight over there, but it was night time here and things like that. And I'd sit at home, and I'm trying to watch television, and I've got the laptop, and I'm approving all these things as it's all going going mm. along and then you got as a, again, you got the internal pressures of not only Vigpole, but we had internal pressures from the AFP as well, and the politics starts kicking in and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it just all became so stressful. Um, and I went and saw my my GP and he, he what well, he's been on my back for ages. He said, you know, it's too stressful, you, you've done enough. You don't you don't mm-hmm. need this, you know. But again, you get that adrenaline of a good job and you've got these good crooks and you know that's yeah, what that's totally. what keeps keeps yeah. you going. Mhm. But in the end, i just had enough, and so he put me off on on work cover. Um, Then I went and saw a psychologist who was very good, and a psychiatrist, I was on medication for a while. I'm now off that. Um, And then I went and did the uh, Melbourne Clinic, uh, a course there for emergency service workers. Mm. And there was guys from uh, the CFA, um, Fire Brigade, um, and Coppers there, in in our group. And we all went through it. Uh now I've got a certificate to say that I'm sane. I would
0: love one of but, those.
1: <laughs> some people still dispute that, but you know, anyway. <laughs> but that was quite helpful um for a for a number of months. Um yeah. So but I think just getting out of the job and yeah. when I eventually did retire, uh I retired on my own um uh, own grounds, if you will. Yeah. Rather than pushed. Because mm-hmm. um, that's what they do. Mm. you know. <laughs> you just washed up and just cast aside. I know it sounds harsh. And I don't want to sound bitter and twisted to the police force because I had a great career. Yeah. You know, it took me yeah. around the world one and a half times, you know. Got a Churchill scholarship, you know. Mm. Fantastic, you know. I got all the all, all the, the awards. Accolades. Yeah, all the awards and decorations, got an Australia Police Medal out of it and mm. Australia Day Honours and things mm. like that. So it was very good to me in that regard. But it just took a toll. I was burnt out and
0: mm. yeah. And I've, I've asked this to a few veterans, but and I think I already know the answer to this, but if you could turn back time, would you have still joined the force? Probably. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Either the military. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I don't really expect anyone to say no to that question because yeah. most people, yeah. despite the, the struggle, still love the job. Oh, I had
1: a ball. Yeah. I had an absolute ball. Some very bad days, but um, yeah, generally yeah. overall, it was good.
0: Could you have seen yourself, I mean, apart from the military, could you have seen yourself doing anything else?
1: Yeah, I actually applied for some <laughs> horticultural jobs.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah,
1: yeah, which I didn't get, obviously. Yeah. And so I joined the police force. Yeah. yeah. But that would be the only other thing. Um, mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but um, I was talking about this with, with Keith Banks, that sliding doors Banksy. moment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sliding doors moment where if you had, have cho- and again, this is such a what if thing, but if you had have chosen, you know, if you're a horticulturist.
1: Horticulturist. Yeah. yeah. Gardner, you were doing, say it, Gardner. Yeah,
0: yeah, gardener. It's a fancy term for gardener. <laughs> if you had have been doing that right now, you know, you don't know, like, what sort of a person would you be? What sort mm. of, you'd have a life full of different memories, different Absolutely. people.
1: Wouldn't know. be so cynical, so cold, so calculating in this job. Yeah, particularly where I've worked, you know, um, robbery, homicide, the task forces, piranha. Those sort of places you know you don't deal with nice people mm it's as mm-hmm. simple as that um, and then there's the flow and effect of their families and friends they're not nice either mm. so you you get this view that everybody you deal withs um a crook mm-hmm. never to be trusted and and anything like that, so that's mm. where you, your, your police family is quite important because mm. you've got that esprit de corps and you know who's who and how they think mm mm-hmm. yeah. Um, generally, got your back.
0: Mm. And and with mental health, um, how would you like to see our approach to especially veteran mental health change?
1: Um, be spoken about more openly and bluntly, mm. because I talk about it openly and bluntly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's something. I think there was a culture, particularly when I joined the job and for most of my service, there's a culture, you don't talk about that, harden up, go to Bunnings, get some cement and harden up, all that yeah, sort man of up. bullshit. Yeah. Um, but it's emotionally draining.
0: Mm.
1: Policing is emotionally draining and no one will convince me otherwise.
0: No, um, absolutely so not.
1: So I think it's got to be spoken about more and openly accepted. And as you know, I speak to the recruits about it. And mm. when they're feeling like... Um, emotionally drained although not sleeping or something that's perfectly natural that is normal Mm. so go and talk to someone go and get some help and help is available Mm. yeah
0: yeah and i can't believe how many times i say this in a day but the conversation that we're having about mental health is all that it takes to start you know start changing mental health all we have to do is start talking about it Mm. to start making a change Mm. it just doesn't mean you're a weak
1: person at all
0: no not at all
1: like I never shied away from the front line and doing what I did because mm. I liked it, but mm. it took a toll in the end,
0: mm. which
1: I had to come to the realisation. Yeah. Mm. And look, I guess when you're in, in my position, I first noticed it badly as a sergeant and I took time off and didn't tell anybody or get any treatment for it. And I thought, no, it's all right. I've had six weeks leave or whatever and went back and away I went again. Mm. And it never, never goes away and still doesn't. I still have nightmares these, these days, not as bad as what I used to. Mm. But, um, I struggled with it all through, but then again, I went to positions of leadership, not only as a sergeant, but as a senior sergeant, I was in charge of Pran Police Station, St Kilda Police Station. So you got all your troops looking at you for leadership, and then I went to, got promoted again, you know, inspector, mm. you know, different places, water police, search and rescue, and then back into the crime department, you know, and you, you're in a leadership role, and your staff are looking towards you, so you've got to be strong, You yeah. yeah. and you've got to give the appearance of being strong. Mm. Um, and provide advice and, that, and be a leader. So that's what forces you and keeps you, keeps you going. Mm. Until the end, you just had enough. And it's, it was described to me, and I think it was quite, quite a good description, that um, every critical incident, everything that causes you stress and anxiety is like a drop of water going into a glass and eventually... Yeah. It overflows. Yeah, and that's what ha- we
0: love—the bucket analogy. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah,
1: and that's what happened to me. It just yeah, overflowed.
0: Yeah, and it's funny to the everyday person. It can seem so small. Mm. What ends up tipping your bucket over? A lot of people say, like, oh, yeah, it could be anything. Like, you burn a piece of toast. Mm. That's it. Yeah, crumble, yeah. and it doesn't make sense to. Why isn't this person. working?
1: And you smash it. Yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. But what? Yeah, what some people don't understand is, you know. Once it's full, you cannot physically get any more water in there. Correct. Um, Yeah, I love that analogy. Mm. Um, So I wanted to ask you as kind of a final thing. Sure. um, How do you manage your own mental health now?
1: Um, I try to exercise as much as I can, walking. Yeah. Um, I was doing a lot of bushwalking, have done over over the years. That's what I like doing, getting out, being alone Mm. where you can, just with your thoughts, things like that. In the mornings, uh, I'm back walking now. I hadn't for a little while. In the summer uh, i'm on my bike every morning mm. riding so that that's great for clearing your head and listening to music i still drink mm. too much but um yeah and catching up with mates
0: mm. yep
1: and garden mm. yeah
0: yeah it's something Garden's um, very important to me mm. you uh, are you growing anything particularly cool at the moment lettuce <laughs> 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 wow you could become like a lettuce dealer
1: yeah yeah well I've, I've got some raised garden beds out the front and i looked at the other day and i think i've got eight lettuces there and they're oh. looking really well i thought hang on 10
0: yeah 12? you're like 10. sitting on a gold mine yeah, yeah. i can't believe carrots
1: them. we've had beautiful carrots this year mm. uh since the grandkids love them mm. so they were over a couple of weeks ago and ripped some out and washed them the end of them mm. so i gave all my kids lettuce to take home as well <laughs> um yeah got some some peas they didn't do too well some chilies chilies are done really well which mm. i've just sent off to a to a mate who loves them mm. um that's all i've got in at the moment great so i'll start prepping for for autumn and summer
0: mm. well that's exciting which will be
1: the tomatoes and year gain lettuce and things mm. like that yeah
0: yeah when lettuce hopefully drops in price and it's not yeah. literal gold yeah,
1: yeah yeah that's it I should have brought some in for you but I probably yeah. rubbed, rubbed on the train
0: <laughs> Oh, that's so funny well um, yeah I hope you uh, you continue to ken, uh, tend to the garden um, yes yeah. and I uh, yeah I'm, I'm keen to see what you have coming up next hmm. in the Ken Ashworth story <laughs> sure
1: another chapter of my life yeah, yeah. absolutely thanks Ken pleasure Carla thank you
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed the episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest from us, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Police Veterans Victoria, or head over to our website, www.policeveteransvic.org.au. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.